0: Welcome to the next in a series of Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine Podcast,
1: brought to you by SAM Rams. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Who's Who in Academic Medicine, brought to you by SAM Rams. My name is Arjun Prabhu. I'm a PGY-2 at the Mount Sinai Hospital. My name is Jared Dutkowski, another PGY-2 at the Mount Sinai Hospital. Our guest today, we're very excited to have Dr. Scott Weingart. ed intensivist who is professor of emergency medicine chief in the division of emergency critical care and director of the resuscitation and acute critical care unit at stony brook university he's also the creator and host of one of if not the most popular medical podcast mcrit welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining
0: us great pleasure to be talking to you and to all the people out there listening
1: so the first question we wanted to ask you is what do you consider an ED intensivist to be, and why did you decide to choose this career path?
0: So once I actually decided on medicine, which was actually quite late in the game, I did not want to do pre-medical classes, and uh, I probably wouldn't have survived it, especially at the pressure cooker college I was in. But they, they came around recruiting humanities and medicine people, and they let you get through without taking pre-medical science. So like, forget it. I could do medicine. You know, I was going to become a chef, and so that, that's a rough life, man. That's... It's brutal. And so I figured I would keep cooking and do medicine. So I went into medicine, but uh, I was an EMT at that point and knew the only medicine I wanted to do was critically ill patients. So I knew I was doing ICU. That was from the get-go. So then the question for anyone who knows that going in is what path? Because in the United States, in our infinite wisdom as a country, we've decided to segregate all of critical care. Every other smart country out there, you do whatever residency you want and there's a common ICU fellowship path, which makes sense. Critical care is critical care. But here you have to pick early on. And whatever residency you do establishes what critical care you could do. So for me, I knew I didn't want to do medical critical care. They just didn't seem, and this is a gross generalization, it's unfair to my Palm Creek colleagues, but they didn't seem to have the aggressiveness I wanted, at least in the places I was exposed to medical critical care. So I knew I wanted to do something on the surgical intensive care side because I just saw a directness to that training path of like getting your hands dirty and not, you know, thinking and, and this is all, like I say, it's gross generalization. I've met some medical critical care people that are amazingly aggressive, but as a specialty, the surgical critical care specialties appealed more. So I knew I I was going to go into something that way. And so what are your paths? Well, you could do surgical critical care as a surgeon. Uh, That was not for me. I did not ever want to be a surgeon. I don't mind the cutting, but the rest of it just seemed horrible. And so it was really between anesthesia and emergency medicine. And either one, I think I would have been very happy with. Anesthesia is a great field. You learn applied physiology. It's a one-on-one patient encounter for the most part. It's great. But what you realize is like a lot of the time during training, you're doing hernia ops and, and stuff like that. So EM was very appealing. So my final pathway I knew, and the question was how to get there. And I just decided EM critical care was the way to go. But at that point, There was no certification path, so it was very nebulous. The people now are lucky. If you decide to go EM critical care, there are three established paths you could take to get your boards and real certifications.
2: Yeah. So you chose to take the EM route. Compared to many of your colleagues in critical care, do you feel like you were supplied certain advantages, having taken that route to get to where you are, as opposed to anesthesia or medicine? I mean, we dominate.
0: in in critical care fellowships. I mean, this is established. uh, Someone put the publication out of board scores, for whatever that's worth. Uh, We always beat the other people, uh, because our specialty has prepared us in every way. Like, what don't you learn during EM? You don't learn nutrition. Yeah, so you have to study that. And you don't learn some of the weird hepatitis. But other than that, man, you could take an ICU in-service cold after an emergency medicine residence. You're probably still going to beat most of the established fellows because this is our bread and butter, at least if you're in the right training program for emergency medicine. Now, I completely ignored your previous question about what is an ED intensivist. So let's circle (laughs) back now that we're there. So an ED intensivist is any emergency medicine and critical care trained person will be an EM intensivist, EM, emergency medicine intensivist. And that, I mean, this is all terms we came up with. It's all garbage. But an EM intensivist is someone who trained in critical care from an emergency medicine pathway. That's an EM intensivist. But you ask, what's an ED intensivist? And for me, an ED intensivist is someone who spends part or all of their career path in an ED critical care unit. Or if it's a kind of a consultant model in your emergency department. They are spending part of their time specifically providing critical care services in the ED. And so then the question becomes, well, what is an ED-ICU? And the easiest way I could define that is that an ED-ICU is any resuscitation zone in which There's a bed available upstairs, but you keep them anyway. That's the determination between a recess area, which most level one EDs have, and an ED ICU. It's simply like you go to Hennepin or Cincinnati. They have amazing recess units, and that's what they call them. They call them recess units because when an ICU bed opens, they send the patient up. If on the other hand an ICU bed's open, but you keep them anyway because you know you could clear them and not waste an ICU bed, or it's just not appropriate to waste an ICU slot for something you could take care of, like an airway watch or a tox patient, you keep them anyway, then you've magically converted your risk sus area into an ED ICU, And so an ED intensivist is someone who spends part of their time either in an ED ICU or providing critical care without an ED ICU as a consult model. So, you know, the people in the department come to the ED intensivist and say, you know, I got this really sick patient, can you take over care.
2: Is that a model you think should be expanded more commonly, more nationally? Do you think it has its place in only certain areas?
0: Well, th- there's a few things to it. First off, is it doesn't make sense to have an ED ICU if you have a surfeit of ICU beds, right? Because what's the point? I mean, I could still argue advantages, but it's much harder to sell when there's 20 beds sitting open in a MICU upstairs and you're gonna keep them down in the ED and need additional manpower, nursing, and space. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you need is you need a shortage of ICU beds, which most major centers, that's what they're experiencing. It's, it's the community places where their ICUs maybe not capable of taking care of really sick patients, where there's extra beds in ICU. And then that's how you have a situation of like patients with no real problems at all, stuff we'd send to the floor, go to an ICU. That doesn't need an ED ICU at those places. Mm-hmm. So you need that to make a geographical space. Now, any ED, I think, could benefit from an ED intensivist on staff in the same way a toxicology staff works. is like you're going to affect the conference teaching, you're going to affect the general level of care, and you're going to be there potentially to like get called if like there's a problem that, like, I can't ventilate this patient, I can't get their auction up. I'm on 20 people, what do I do now? Okay, you call up the ED intensivist if you don't have the palm crypt people available to talk to, and great. So that'll work anywhere, but having an actual ED ICU, you need a shortage of ICU beds, and then there's two gradations of ED ICU. There's what we call standalone which currently Michigan is the major progenitor of. And that's a tough sell because that is an entirely separate ICU with all of the costs that go along with that in the ED, but separate from it. Meaning the patients get resuscitated in one area of the main emergency department then get sent over to the ED ICU. So you have beat this entire separate space. You're staffing it with separate nurses, separate docs, very expensive. They're supposedly still turning a profit and making it worthwhile. I'd have a hard time selling that here. We do what we call a hybrid EDICU here and in my previous place at Elmhurst, which means we will do critical care on them. We'll keep them even if there's an ICU bed. For instance, DKA is the perfect example of that. But... We're not burning any extra space. It is the resus area as well. And you're using regular ED staff. So, you know, in my unit, I'm not staffing it 24-7 with ED intensivists. The regular ED people are rotating through because since it's the resus area for the ED, if you didn't do that, they'd kill you because they'd never see sick patients. So if you do that, it's cost neutral, right? The, right. If you're at a place that already has a shift set aside for resus, and most major medical centers do because they realize like that attending can't also be responsible for another zone, then it's entirely cost neutral. Right? And the only cost is what should have happened even before when you were a recess, which is you need a reasonable nursing ratio. But you need that for recess anyway. Like, you know, people getting away with like one nurse to four or six patients in a recess area is not doing it right. So if you're mm-hmm. doing it right for recess, then turning into an ICU is basically an overnight activity. Mm-hmm. You just make protocols that say, here's the groups we're going to keep, even if there is an ICU bed, and you just keep them. So it's cost neutral. That's an easy sell.
1: You mentioned earlier that. Emergency medicine residency is set up perfectly to prepare us for critical care. Do you feel that in the future, EM people should be running their own critical care residencies? Do you think there's enough interest amongst EM residents to to start that?
0: It's not an interest thing. It's what are you going to train them in, right? Like, look, we do a resource fellowship. I think we're the only one in the country right now that's doing a clinical recess fellowship. There's recess fellowships out there that are, when you look at them, they're primarily research-based fellowships, and there's some fantastic ones. I think we're the only ones in the States, and someone will correct me if I'm wrong, running a clinical-based recess fellowship, and there's one in Canada as well that we know of. And that I could do, that we can own, because we tell these people you will never be able to run an ICU. I mean... The truth of it is they actually would be. And we sent a few of our residents who are doing ICU time now, and they're doing great. But the point is we don't advertise like you'll be able to work in an ICU. But we're going to give you the additional skills to be the masters, the niche person in resus mm-hmm. in your ED. And so we send them outside of our unit to do inpatient ICU rotations at shock trauma. We do a lot of resus. We do a whole bunch of electives in, in the areas I think are important that are outside the auspices of standard emergency medicine. And that we could do. But you can't run an ICU fellowship because you need to be an ICU in order to train people to do ICU. So what would be the ideal? The ideal would be what our country should do is make critical care one fellowship. There's no reason for this, and I keep saying this, but this is uh, directly pertinent to academics. There's no reason for a surgical critical care fellowship and anesthesia critical. That's just stupid. So emergency medicine would be the natural pipeline entry in addition to all these other specialties into one critical care fellowship for an entire medical system.
2: This is sort of an open-ended question, but what advice would you give emergency medicine residents who are interested in pursuing a career in critical care?
0: Decide early is, is maybe the major advice. So when I first started, because there was no pathway and because we were relatively rare, you had your pick of the best critical care fellowships in the country. You were a novelty. And we have much better on paper than most of the applicants to critical care. Like a top-notch EM resident going to a critical care, you are so far beyond what most of the applicants are from the other specialties that like they want to give you a try when I was applying. Like, this is like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so like you had your pick, you know, it, was, it wasn't a question of would you get in. It was a question of do you want Pitt or shock trauma or Stanford or, or Dartmouth, you know, you, like that was the question. Now it's so competitive because as soon as we open the credentialing pathway, everyone wants because it's such a natural thing for like certain people that go into EM want to do this. There's a dire competition, so the only way you're probably going to get a spot is by rotating at the place you really want to go to. And since the rotations fill up, knowing this at some point during your first year, if you're in a three-year program or certainly in your second year in a four-year program is probably essential unless you're willing to go to like a slightly lower tier in which case again you could write your own ticket in most of these places but you want to go to the one of the really good ones the only thing that gets and this is advice for our medical students as well applying to residencies what gets you in is board scores usually that they just cull based on that that doesn't once you get past a threshold that doesn't help you anymore but you know if you're below the cull you're probably not going to get there A letter from someone known to the place you're applying. Because, you know, any idiot could get a letter that looks great because they have the one person that thinks they're good and they get the letter Mm -hmm. from them. I I look at those. That doesn't help me. Anyone could get a good letter. If I get a good letter from someone I respect Mm -hmm. and know, well, that's immensely potent. So if you never rotated a shock trauma, but a good personal friend of Tom Scalia wrote you and said, this guy's fantastic. That's going to help you. Or this woman is like the best resident I've seen in like 10 years. That's money. But if they don't know, him, that's probably not too helpful. And you know, the secret, the dirty little secret about applications, both at fellowship and resident level, is anyone smart who's considering a candidate. It's not just the letter. You email or call up the person and say, like, yeah, I saw what you wrote, but on the side, is this person going to be someone I enjoy working with or not? And if you get the nod, mm-hmm. That's the thing. And then the third factor that gets you into a place that's competitive is rotating there and proving yourself. Because again, I will take someone with lower board scores who is just a wonderful human being to work with over anyone who looks great on paper, but it's going to make my life a miserable hell for three years because I have to work with these people. You know, so that's, that's the real truth of it. Like, I don't care what stupid volunteer work you did in college. I mean, that might make, get, get you into med school, but that's not going to be what gets you into residency. I mean, if I really had my druthers and, you know, you, the applicants never allow it, but I'd love every person who wants to apply for a fellowship to actually have to do a tryout shift, you know, for a day or yeah, so. Right. And then you'd actually know. And that's what we do with our resource fellowship because we only take two slots. It's easy to say, look, if you really think you wanna come here, come hang with us for a few days because it's gotta be a, a fit. You know, it, It's harder to do that in an emergency medicine residency application. And even these fellowships that have you know, 10 people, you can't ask anyone to do that. But if you wanna get into a, a place that's gonna be competitive, go there. And that means you have to know early. And then some of these matches, you guys probably know better than me, they're not in your third year. Some of them you have to know by the second half of your second year. So you've right,
1: gotta make right. the decision. For people that are at residencies or, or medical schools where there isn't as much exposure to critical care or that have a critical care faculty, do you have any advice for them on how to kind of make some of these connections or go about trying to get away rotations at you know places that have these uh, fellowships?
0: So EMRA's critical care group is great. I don't know. SEM has a critical care group as well. I, I haven't dealt with them. I'm sure they're fantastic as well, but I have no firsthand experience. And ASEP's is fantastic. So that, that's going to be a connection. And everyone in the, our community is still small enough that everyone still wants to help each other. It's not like we start bagging on each other yet. So you know, <laughs> utilize that while it's still good. And everyone is super friendly and super willing to help. And what might happen is like, okay, fine, you want to work at shock trauma and they say, oh, we're, we're, we're closed. We have no additional slots. Well, go rotate with someone at the ASEP critical care group and and go to their place and you might meet someone who has an in at the place you want to go and they'll get you, you know, they'll put in the email and say, come on, can you just let this person rotate and get you in? So yeah, make, build those connections. And the key for anything to succeed in life is to be humble, enthusiastic, and to offer more than you're asking for. I get so many emails, you know, like so many emails and, and people are like, they want, a chunk of your time, like could you write back with all the tips that, you know, you would say to get me uh, uh, into a ED critical care cr- I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't have time for that. You know, I might, if like enough people write to a podcast on something because that like force multiplies it. But if you write me and say, and like, look, the, the, the thing to always steal is like, you know, the business people have figured this stuff out 20 years ago of like how to get mentorship and all that. They figured this all out. Is you want to write with like the smallest possible ask. Like, could you just answer yes or no? Should I do this? I'm going to reply to that email. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's easy. And so if you want to, you know, grab some connection or mentorship, make it totally easy for them. Like, you know, I've been really thinking about this one topic. I know you're an expert on this. I'm going to write the entire paper. And there's just this one area I have a big question about. Can I send you the two paragraphs I'm really struggling with all right. Well, that's a hard thing to say no to. I'll read two paragraphs. And if I read those two paragraphs, I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty clever. Well, then I'm going to say, you know, okay, send me the whole paper or what have you. And then you start building connection. But people have this expectation of that, like, you know, the people they want to make connections with are just going to, you know, bend over backwards to... You want to make it like, so difficult to say no. Like, can I come... And hang out with you for one shift, but I'm not gonna, cause like, what do you dread as, like, you guys don't know yet, but you could probably intuit it. What do you dread as an attending? All right, well, could I come do a shadow shift with you? That means for eight hours, I am just locked, you know, six inches from this person's face for eight hours. That's torture. <laughs> the answer is gonna be no. But if someone wrote me and said, look, I know you're super busy, could I come during one of your shifts and hang out with your resident? I promise I'm not going to, you know, I, I'll, I'll be there. And maybe I'll ask you a question or two, but I promise, like you're saying this up front, I promise you, I'm not going to, you know, take up much of your time. Can I hand, can't, I- yeah, sure. Knock yeah, yourself out. I'm just, sure, yeah. I'm selling my residence yeah. down the there. Or, you know, be smart. Can I come for one hour during one of your shifts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No matter how horrible you are, I could deal with you for an hour. <laughs> and what's the answer Like, if I like you during that hour, I'm not going to say get the hell out of here, but it's an easy ask. And, and so do that and, That's how you make connections. It's just making it so palatable to Mm -hmm. say yes. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. It sounds like you have acted as a mentor both here at your home institution, but really nationally as well. What do you think are the qualities of a great mentor? It's hard.
0: Most of the relationship establishment. And you know, this, you know, most people don't want to hear this, but it's the truth. So I'm going to tell you most of the relationship establishment needs to be on the mentee side. They need to go out of their way to make it easy for the mentor. Unless you're like in a PhD program where you have an assigned mentorship and that's part of their job. But if this is ad hoc, if this is bonus, Mm -hmm. then you want to make it totally easy for them. So don't ask them, Hey, can we go grab coffee? Because that's, you know, Everything you do, it's the actual and then all the things surrounding the actual. So like if, I, if I'm going to go meet my mentee for a beer, I'm going to be the one initiating that or, or a cup of coffee because I know what my time is and I'm not going to put it on them to ask me. But, you know, show up during shift of your mentor. And look, I'll, I'll give – there's always space no matter how busy the shift is to talk shit out. During the shift. So go there during their shifts. You make the effort, show up, make it easy for them to give you what you need. And it's the same thing we were talking about about making connections. Make everything as easy as possible. It's up to you to have on your calendar, check in with my mentor as the mentee, and just make it totally, absolutely the easiest thing in the world. And then you're gonna get the maximum thing out of your mentors. Have focused questions. You know, people come to me and say, What should I be doing? All right. Well, I don't know what you should be doing. You know, I I know what I did, but but recommending my path. You know, this is a, a big misunderstanding in entrepreneurship. Is you look at these success stories. Steve Jobs started his computer company in his garage. Okay, well, let's everyone work in a garage. No, this is all retrospective bias because you look at the successes and then you say what they did work. You have no idea of what they did work. So you know, following Weingart's pathway to you know become an ED intensivist may work or may not. But what you need to do is ask focused questions about actual decision points in your life. And that's the stuff the mentor could help you with is, you know, one of my attendings has asked me to work on an up-to-date chapter, but I also have this other attending who's working on a research project. Which one is better for my career? That's, an, that's something that's answerable, and I could actually give you advice based on my experience. Open-ended questions about where I should go in my life are not going to be as helpful. Um, so focused questions made easy is, is the successful way to use your mentor and then it doesn't need to be one mentor. You know, you might want me to advise you on your critical care pathway, but then you realize like doing some research may make you more potent. I am not the person to be your research mentor. I don't do that stuff. So, you know, finding a whole bunch of mentors, first of all, you get the the focused stuff you want, but it also eases up the actual stress on the individual mentors. You know, someone comes to me and said, could you be my mentor? No. But, you know, look, I, I, I'm building, you know, a, a network of mentors. Could you be the person specifically that talks to me about, you know, which rotations and how I should actually make myself look good for critical care fellowship? Yeah, no problem. That, that's something I'm not committing my entire, you know, soul and blood
1: to. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like being proactive, figuring out specific things that you want to get out of the relationship, you know, doing some research and choosing people that, It makes sense to mentor you in those areas are kind of some of the overarching things.
0: Yeah, and look, honestly, at this stage, if I got a cold call email, like, "Will you be my mentor of any sort? The answer to me, no, I am saturated. Anything I do at this point is at the expense of something else I'm already doing. And most of your people who are in the middle or or later stages of their career, that's the case. There's no more slack. It's done. Anything I do is at the expense of something else. But if you get someone one or two years out from a critical care fellowship, they are probably your better mentor because you're getting a few advantages. One, they are not saturated yet. Two, you're getting near peer advice. I've forgotten all the crap. And even if I remember – what was happening 15 years ago is not the state of the game now for getting into critical care fellowship. But you talk to someone who just graduated one of the good critical care fellowships, and they're a year or two into their career. You don't want to, you don't want to bother them year one. They're too busy passing their oral boards. But at year two, they're chill now. They're making some money. They have some hours you know, that are reasonable. That's your perfect mentor. Go for the near-peer mentorship for the most part, and you're going to have more success with them saying yes and probably better advice. And there's so many critical care people out there now, finally. We, we you know, because it's a multiplicative progression, that there, there's a bunch of people out there, either in your institution or close to it.
2: So, switching gears a bit, I'm going to hit on a topic I think a lot of people want to know about. It's MCRIT. Okay. So, you, you are very active in the podcasting realm and social media realm, and obviously well known for MCRIT. How did that come about? Where did that begin?
0: Okay. So, at the time, there was really no medical podcast. There was MRAP, which I don't consider a podcast because it was behind a paywall and it was kind of a subscription thing where they sent you first cassettes and then discs. So that was out there and that was freaking amazing. But there was no real medical podcasting. And I was doing these grand round lectures early on in my career. And what you realize is if you're a real lecturer, not the garbage lectures out there, but a real lecturer, you put in like 10, 15 hours for an hour talk. And that's not even counting the research time that went into it of all the gathering of the information over the course of the time to make you interested in talking on a topic. So you put all that time in, and then you give the grand rounds to your residents, or you know, like a, a lecture to your residents, or maybe a grand round, and then it, it sits in the closet for six months until mm-hmm. you're ready to take it out again and talk. And that just seemed like a waste. Like that was not a good use of time to benefit. And I was listening to uh, some of the non-medical podcasts at the time, like Radiolab and This American Life. That was what was out there then. And they were amazing. And, like, I would listen. And what you'd get is this intimate experience with the people on the other end of the podcast. You felt like you knew the actual broadcasters because it was so weird. Like, they're speaking in your ear at moments when your guard is down and you're in these intimate moments. I'm like, that's cool. And I like that idea. And I had an audio background in college. That's what I did as my uh, part time job is, is like audio engineering for conferences and stuff. So I, I knew how to do audio. There wasn't, it wasn't easy like it is now, it's not plug and play. So I'm like, forget it. I think I could do this. And the problem when you start a podcast is you're speaking out to the ether, you have no idea if anyone's hearing. And it's not until you start gathering an audience that you start getting feedback. Because it's like my experience is like for every thousand listeners, you get one comment, right? So it takes a while before you know if you're hitting anyone. So those first, you know, maybe like six to 12 months of episodes were just like me hoping someone was listening. And occasionally you get a comment like, wow, that was really nice, or I have a question about that. And you feel like, oh, well, maybe I'm getting somewhere. But if you stick with it, you start developing an audience, and that becomes a real self-perpetuating enjoyment because you are reaching so many more people with these lectures that otherwise just die on a grand round stage.
1: So NCREIT obviously helps to educate emergency and critical care physicians, residents, medical students, and other people in the medical field all over the country and the world. But it's not a traditional form of scholarly activity like a publication in a journal. Early on, was was that difficult to explain to your bosses um, or to get some quote-unquote credit for in, in, in an academic sense?
0: Well, uh, alright, so there's a few questions inherent in that question. So the first thing is, your bosses. I never ask for protected time for this podcast stuff. Cause I, I'm an academic center, and what you'll find out when you get jobs is like you already have hours built into academic centers for just a starting person who comes in that are supposed to be used for educational activity. Like you you get in most places 10, 12 hours just built in just for showing up that are supposed to be used for education. What you quickly realize is most people don't do jack with that time. You know, They're just, no, I work a 30-hour week, that's my week. No, you work a 40-hour week and as an academic physician, you're supposed to be providing 10 hours of education, whether that means residence or whatever. So just doing the podcast was already a protection for me that no one looked at that time and said, hey, jackass, you know, you're know, you supposed <laughs> to be giving us that time. So it was inherent by that. and. It did happen over the course of my academic career that I watched my other brethren who were doing nothing start getting really, you know, hit by that. And there was talk of like maybe we should make it 36 for people that aren't being produced. So just doing the podcast protected me from that. Now I was doing all sorts of other educational stuff. I was core faculty. I was giving lectures and medical students stuff. So that wasn't really even a problem. But that was – it was just a nice buffer to make – no one could say about me I wasn't producing. But in promotion is where it becomes interesting because – When we first started, this was not a pathway to promotion. But over the course of it, I got my associate professor through the Sinai system based primarily on this new media work. And I became a tenured professor here, primarily on the back of the podcast. And my friend Michelle Lynn, same, professorship based on primarily scholarship through new media. And any promotion committee, when you look at their bylaws, what it's going to say is, documented dissemination and practice change. There's no way you have that from traditional journal articles. You may get a dissemination through something like, uh, you know, the rubrics that look at how many citations of your paper there are, but it's it's not really what you want. I have documented objective proof of how many people listen and then through comments, because if you're smart, you save all your comments of practice change, and I had an educational portfolio that blew away anything from the perspective of, like, meeting the criteria of dissemination and, and practice change. No one else is going to, in the old media forms, are going to be able to document that. that doesn't exist. So it's, it's all a second order guessing that, you know, you did a huge paper and then that changed practice. But I have proof of practice change because I had thousands of comments saying, I listened to your wake intubation podcast and then did it the next day and it saved this patient's life. So that, unless your p and committee is total hypocritical organization, they have to give that some regard. Mm-hmm. Now, not every place is going to give it a lot of regard, but you know, more and more places are saying this is valid scholarship, especially for a clinical educator pathway. If you want to be a tenured research professor, this ain't going to cut it. This ain't research. But if you want a clinical educator, this is right there on the money.
2: The podcast you do, the social media outreach, it's on a very national scale. It's, it's not intrinsic to your, your home institution here. We were lucky enough to attend a lecture this morning, sort of a procedural series focused at your home institution, your residents here. How do you balance that responsibility between these national obligations and those you have to your residents?
0: Yeah, there's no need to balance. Here's the beauty of it. If, if you really want to play, you're so much better off... If you are a podcaster, I'm not, look, let me be clear. I am not advocating anyone listening to the startup podcast. You need to have a burning desire and anyone could have three podcasts in them. So you might get through that and think, Oh, this is fun. It's podcast number 20. That is the marker. And by then you've put a lot of time into this. So I'm not saying that, but if you are someone who's already doing this, or this is a great use of a one-off is the flip classroom is the most gorgeous thing in the world. So if I really wanted to meet my responsibility to my residents, I would have, because I, I, we discussed awake intubation today, and I didn't know we were going to discuss that. I, I planned to do a different lecture, and it was just like it was an audible that we did for awake intubation. The Smarter Move and what I normally do is make them listen to my awake intubation podcast before the lecture, and then we talk about it. And now you flip the classroom, so there's no balance. It's, it's gorgeous. It's so much better if the podcast is out there for the world, I make my residents listen before the planned lecture, and then we just talk about it because then they come in so much at a higher level, savvy. We can talk about the, the finer points, the, the edge cases, the real questions, as opposed to here where I had to give kind of an introductory lecture, which I would have preferred not to do. So that's a, why there is no mixing of the balances. I do it the other way sometimes too. Like I did lumbar puncture today on a model. I recorded that. That's going to make it to the podcast because, you know, the lecture for the residents will get it edited down and go out. So they're totally mutually beneficial.
1: The two are not, you know, one taking away from the other. So the awake innovation talk that you gave today stemmed from a real case that you had with a resident. Yeah. Is that normally how you get the material that you discuss on the podcast from actual clinical experience?
0: Yeah, it is. It's, it's kind of a, like one of the few problems I have in my current place is Elmhurst. You guys know you're both from the, the Sinai system. Elmhurst is a unique place. Uh, it was uh, a lot of undocumented uh, immigrants who did not want to seek health care. So they came in super sick. And they didn't have doctors and you saw them for the first time with a variceal bleed or like horrible, horrible stuff that shouldn't get seen much anymore when you have a real healthcare system, which we don't in this country. So it was a huge fodder. It was basically the source of all the podcasts because I'd see something and shift and I'm like, this wasn't handled at the level that I think, you know, I'd like to in the future. So let me research for, you know, every textbook and article known to man. And then that got distilled into a podcast episode. Problem here at Stony Brook, it's not a real problem, it's just a better healthcare system, is everyone has doctors. Everyone isn't. So I don't see the crazy stuff, the edge cases that really make for the podcast. And it's, it's the one problem. It makes me want to moonlight, and it very well might happen, back at Elmhurst a few shifts a month because the podcast is fueled by the edge. Right? Because everyone knows already. It's already well-established how to handle bread and butter stuff. You can make tiny little betterments, but you don't get the real game changers on the bread and butter. You get the game changers on the edge case that then is the fuel. And I don't have as much fuel as I used to. So I need, I need to get that. So that, that's the one problem with my current shop at Stony Brook is people have too much health care.
2: Just too well set up.
1: Too well set
0: up in this neighborhood.
1: Mm-hmm. We would obviously love to have you uh, come back to Elmer's for yep. a few shifts. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so thank you for taking your time to talk about your your career and your profession. If you have a few more minutes, yeah. I'd, I'd like to switch gears sure. and maybe talk about the uh, Scott Weingart behind the Dr. Weingart.
0: Okay, yeah, happy to. Um, I'm, I'm an open book. That's what it means to be a podcaster is you begin to really know, even if that podcaster doesn't want to show you who they are, yeah. you begin to know
2: who they are. No, and we, we don't. We don't want to show you
0: who we are. <laughs> All right, fair enough.
2: <laughs> so the first question I have is, is something you, you do still advertise on your blogs. You share about many books you've enjoyed. You mentioned earlier you have these more philosophical episodes on your own podcast. Is this something you see as a separate interest from your career? Is this something that you like to incorporate into your daily practice? Or is it something that uplifts your life in other ways?
0: What it comes down to is if you are a one-track practitioner in any career – You are suboptimal. The beauty, uh, the way to advance is to take from many genres and disciplines and take what's best from them and bring it back to you. Now this could be rid on a small scale by just the fact that you can make an entire academic career simply by going to ENT, finding out the way they do things and bring it back to emergency medicine. You go to GI, see how they do things, bring up, people have built professorships simply on going to the best practice in another specialty and bringing it back to EM. But when you start expanding beyond those boundaries to philosophy, psychology, you know all the other things, That is the way to be an innovator. Now, some people don't want to be innovators. They want to be refiners or you know social progressors and help other people. And and that that's all huge. But my love in my specialty is innovation. Where do you find the new things? And you find the new things in other disciplines. And you need to go afield of what you're doing to find the best ways to do it. So all of it feeds in. this was talked about by every person who has really studied the game of expertise. So when you look at the progenitors of OODA loops, the entire way to orient is to go to other places. So like this was written by an Air Force guy, but he was looking at, you know, Jungian philosophy and psychology and all this stuff because that's how you master your own. And so cross-training is key. So that that's one thing. But then what you find is just a – joy and happiness to your job and outside job comes from that kind of stuff as well. So burnout, these are all soluble issues if you go out of medicine to find your solutions. But if you stay in medicine, you're not going to find easy pathways to avoid it because medicine is the problem. And so I came from a liberal arts background. I never would have gone into medicine. I never would have survived pre-medical. And so as a result, I come in from a different perspective. And I think Even the people that were hardcore science should start looking in other areas. I talked to some of the people in medicine and I'm like, what's the last fiction book you've read? And they haven't read one for 25 years. That's not a well-rounded person. And it's not just well-rounded in their outside life. They're, They're probably not the same doctors they could be. They lack humanity. They lack all the things that come from being able to appreciate the rest of the world outside medicine.
1: Not to put you on the spot, but for those people who haven't, you know, read a a fiction book in a while, any recommendations? I always go to catch twenty two
0: crime and punishment
1: um catch 22 is particularly great
0: because of the sublime nature of how ridiculous their gig is and then you start comparing to ours i mean it's not a perfect book but i think every doctor needs to read house of god as well which is a fictionalized account of reality and like look don't apply the lessons necessarily without thinking them through but that is a book that i think if you haven't read you will enjoy and the lessons
1: in there are worthwhile Mm -hmm. one last question you you mentioned elmhurst earlier which uh, yeah in addition to interesting pathology, because of the immigrant community, there's a lot of great ethnic food around there. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, any <laughs> any specific place that you would have to go to if you're in that area?
0: I mean, the problems are they, they keep closing and opening. But the, I, I would just say if you want to taste real Thai, and you probably haven't tasted real Thai unless you've gone to Elmhurst or Thailand, uh, just try some of the regional Thai places. Like you, uh-huh. you go out here, I have Thai, but that doesn't mean anything. That's stupid. If you go to a Thai restaurant, they're missing the game. What you want is like a certain sub-region in Thailand and that, that's when you really start up in the game, but prepare to sweat. But yeah, I'd say go to Elmhurst, find the, the best, you know, because we have so many like restaurant rating sites in New York City. Just take a trip if you come to Manhattan as a visitor. Take one day, go into Queens, because first of all, the boroughs are where it's at. Manhattan's a right. dead zone. Um, <laughs> go to the boroughs and then just look for the, the best new Thai restaurant that's getting great ratings on the restaurant review sites and, and enjoy it's gonna be a hole in the wall and don't expect like perfect cleanliness but you will enjoy the food
2: right ignore
1: the health rating yep. for the food
0: exactly right
2: mm-hmm.
1: well we had a lot of great advice today from dr Wangat thanks again so much for yeah. joining us we really appreciate it it's been a pleasure yeah thank you for sharing both professionally and personally thank you for your time all right
0: bye guys and bye everyone out there